So, Jay, I hear Nate Gray is taking over the world. Seems like, Miles. I'm honestly surprised he hasn't before. He did have a pretty big following in New York for a while in the 90s. Oh, what for? Eh, uh, you know, profit, general purpose miracle worker. So, the usual. Up and coming rock and roll vocalist. What? I'm Jay Edidon. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 237 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And Jay, listeners, we're here. Yep, it's time to talk about that time Nate Gray was in a band. We're not talking about that at all, are we? I hope we're not. I, I haven't read those issues. We're not. We're not. That didn't happen until years later. Um, although I, I do feel like, for people who are, are wondering about his characterization, I, I think the most important thing to remember about Nate Gray um, in Age of X-Men and in general is that he was basically raised by the players from Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. Yeah, I mean, pretty much that. I do really enjoy the uh, pseudo-Shakespearean troupe from Age of Apocalypse that he hangs out with, especially Forge. Right? That is the version of Forge I like by far and away the most. Mm-hmm. He's much less of a douchebag than many of the others. Although I really did appreciate Dennis Hopeless's version of Forge from Cable and X-Force. Yeah, yeah, I liked him. Yeah, but anyway, what we're actually going to talk about today is the remaining 1993 first appearance, trading card included annuals, and of course the most important character, the most memorable character to come out of that was Empyrean. Man, I was about to make that joke. Yeah, okay, it's not Empyrean. Of course the character we've been building up to for all of this time, whose, whose arrival we have, we have anticipated for years at this point, is Adam X the Extreme, who's also one of the only characters introduced in these annuals who really stuck around. Yeah, although surprisingly not very much. I was doing like a, a where are they now bit of research about Adam X, and he's around for a few issues, and then he just disappears for 15 years and comes back as a joke. Which is kind of a shame, because he's an interesting concept, although I gotta say, man, his first appearance did not leave me, you know, desperate for more. It would have been interesting to see how he could have evolved outside of the immediate context of, of the 90s X lineup. Man, his first appearance, I gotta disagree with you there, Jay. I thoroughly, unironically, well, okay, a little ironically, mostly unironically enjoyed it. We'll get to that. I feel like, let's save that one for a second. Let's maybe do the less memorable one first. What do you say? I'm down for that. And honestly, what I want to start with saying is that I'm genuinely disappointed that Empyrean didn't end up showing up more. I know that's weird. I know he's forgettable. I know his design's pretty awful. But the larger concept of him, and especially of what he's trying to do in this issue, is really interesting. I completely agree, but I'm pleased to report that he did show up again. But we'll get to that after we're done talking about him, because it is delightful. Okay, so... We need to give you a little bit of prior context. Basically, the legacy virus exists. It was created by Strife. It targets only mutants. It's roughly a metaphor for AIDS. And as it kills mutants, one of the later stages of it involves their powers going out of control, accelerating out of control. So far, the legacy virus has killed Ilyana Rasputin, Mastermind, and quite a few Genosian mutates. You think it's done? It is not. Other stuff that's going to be relevant here. A while ago... 
Psylocke, who may be Betsy Braddock and may be an assassin named Quanon and maybe some combination of the two, hit on Cyclops real hard and he felt awkward and ran away to Alaska and none of them ever discussed it. But while Cyclops was in Alaska, he talked about, what do you know, the legacy virus with Mr. Sinister. Who dropped a strong hint that Cyclops may actually have a second brother or at least one additional brother on top of Havoc. I mean, not literally on top of Havoc. I mean, not aside from in, like, an archive of our own or something. Wow, that was really not necessary, man. (laughs) And yet, there it is. God, way to ruin the entire episode in advance. (laughs) Hooray! Well, anyway, speaking of Psylocke, there are, like, two of her right now. There's Psylocke, and there's Revanche, and one of them has a British body, and one has an ambiguously Asian body. And we are currently referring to them as just Psylocke and Ravanche because the code names are the only solid disambiguation. Ravanche currently has Elizabeth Braddock's original body, and Psylocke currently has Quanon's original body. Meanwhile, meanwhile, it sure is 1993. Oh, how very 1993 it is. Boy, is it ever. And that brings us to X-Men Annual Number 2, whose lead story is A Bluer Slice of Heaven, written by Fabian Nicesa, penciled by Aaron Weisenfeld, inked by Al Milgram, Bob Vicek, and Keith Williams, and colored by Mike Thomas and Dana Morshead. Oh, God. Aaron Weisenfeld's quote about this annual is, is, is pretty great, and I feel like we should just open with it. Yeah, this is from actually the same Multiversity Comics interview that we quoted regarding chaos. You remember him, the dark elf guy who was awesome from the other annual? Yeah, that one. The greatest original character ever. The we want the why we want to play D&D with with Evan Skolnick forever now. I think we like legitimately should see if he wants to do that. We really should. Anyway, that quote from Aaron Weisenfeld, the penciler. It was without a doubt the worst book I ever drew. The ironic thing is that it was also the book that sold the most copies just because it was X-Men. I was just starting out, so my skills were pretty raw. I ran out of time two-thirds of the way through. Marvel was very disciplined about making sure everything came out on time, so they told me to just send in layouts for the remaining third of the book, which were only rough sketches on printer paper. The inking was clearly rushed too, so it was just a total disaster. Fortunately for me, it was sold pre-wrapped in a plastic bag, so people didn't know what a piece of shit they were buying until they got it home. I love how enthusiastic he is about it. And he worked out just fine. He later did the rad Deathblow Wolverine miniseries, and then a bunch of covers on Why the Last Man, and now he's a very successful traditional gallery artist. All right. So that brings us to the story and to the character who's introduced here, who's actually not introduced. And you said Empyrean, and Empyrean isn't even actually the character's name. It's just the name of his island. This character is author Jonathan Chambers, whom we've met already. We met him in X-Men Unlimited number two. He's an author, and he wrote a book about Magneto and about mutant human relations called Fatal Attractions. But it turns out he has a secret. Well, he has a number of secrets. The thing that's not a secret about Jonathan Chambers is that after the unprecedented success of his book, he purchased an island. This island, um, we are told, is in Florida's Big Pine Keys. And I'm going to go on a brief tangent here and explain why that's fucking stupid. Please. Um, Big Pine Key is actually the name of a specific island in the Florida Keys. That's all. That's the main reason. Um, And I know this because I've actually been there because it's where um, 
a place called Newfound Harbor Marine Institute is, and that's a marine research institute that also does educational programs for kids and for classes and does something called Sea Camp that's for like fourth and fifth graders where you go and you spend like three days to a week there and you get to swim with sharks and do a, a whole bunch of really cool marine biology and ecology stuff. Wait, so you're telling me it's not covered by a giant fortress-like mansion owned by Jonathan Chambers who hangs out in a bathrobe which a bunch of, with a bunch of sort of appropriative Chinese dragons all over it? I'm saying that there isn't a separate archipelago called the Big Pine Keys. Oh, well, uh, that too. But anyway, so Chambers has, has bought this, this island um, of his own, and it's the island specifically that's named... Empyrean. Um, Chambers just goes by his own name. In addition to an island, Chambers owns a very, very fancy bathrobe, which he wears perpetually over what looks like kind of a hydro body suit, I guess. Hey, when you're rich, you can basically do what you want, as I understand. Anyway, this issue tries real hard to set Chambers up as a morally gray and potentially villainous character, but he's very clearly not. What he is is a mutant who sort of eats spillover mutant powers and can use them to create some kind of painful feedback, but that's not the main the main thrust of his powers. Um, it's, it's basically absorbing leftover mutant power energy, and what that means in practical terms is that he can stabilize the power surge patients experience in the final stage of the legacy virus. And I totally agree with you. This is a great concept. They could do so much with this concept. And this dude really only shows up here and in a miniseries that nobody's ever read that we'll talk about later. Well, and he's specifically doing the thing that we always complain about mutants not doing in the Marvel Universe, which is looking at a non-superheroic application of his powers. Specifically, he's setting up his fancy island home as a retreat and hospice for legacy patients because he is in a singular position to provide palliative care. And this is really interesting, coming right on the heels of Fatal Attractions, which was, of course, about Magneto creating a haven for mutants away from the mainstream world. And here we see a different kind of haven for a different subgroup of mutants. And in fact, Beast even comments on it when he shows up at the island later in the story. It would appear that of late, everyone seems to be happily willing to offer us passage through the pearly gates. Except that really isn't the point of Avalon. And... Part of the reason that it's necessary in this context, in context of Empyrean, is that we know the legacy virus is pretty highly contagious, or possibly contagious. They haven't yet determined over what vectors it moves. So the need for, quarant the need for quarantine in this context is real. And everyone assumes that something very sinister is up, or that the fact that Chambers benefits somewhat from this arrangement means that somehow it's exploitative or evil. One of the things I really appreciate in context of the discussion of it when it finally comes up is that Pyro, who's his first patient and who's there, who, who, whom the entire Brotherhood has accompanied there because they're good friends, explains that, no, this is something that works out really well for both parties and it's nice being able to be part of what's functionally an equal exchange rather than having to be entirely reliant. Yeah, well, okay, two things about that. Um, thing number one, you mentioned everyone being suspicious of it, and as I understood from the story, part of why the X-Men in particular were so suspicious is that the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants were there, and they were like, hey, they have evil right in their name, and we've heard multiple justifications for why they do that, but when it comes down to it, evil right in their name we should check this out even though this jonathan chambers guy seemed like a pretty good dude he debated that douchebag who leads the friends of humanity he wrote a book that is very like intelligently written and pro-mutant so that's cool but let's figure out what's up but secondly 
the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants and Pyro, you may recall, gentle listeners, that when Exodus showed up on the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants yacht while they were all sunbathing, he said that Pyro might have been let into Avalon, Magneto's Haven, except that he was tainted. And yeah, this is where we find out why. This is where we find out that somehow Magneto or Exodus was able to detect the legacy virus within Pyro even before Pyro knew it was there. And I do appreciate that that seed was planted relatively recently and is followed up on right here. Comics are often not terribly deliberate in their order of operations, and here they are, and I like that. Now, back at Stately Xavier Manor, before most of this goes down, we've got a B-plot that's going to end up being much, much more central to the X-Men and whose, whose repercussions we're going to feel reverberating for decades. So back at, the, back at Xavier Manor, Psylocke... And remember, that's that's the 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 character who is is in Quanon's original body. Invites Jean to scan her mind and to figure out whether she's actually Betsy or Quanon because she feels so awkward about trying to seduce Scott. Now, Jean and Xavier have actually had the means to do this all along, but they've refrained so far out of res- respect for Betsy and Quanon's privacy. And when Jean scans Psylocke now, she determines that in fact she's not either. Quanon or Betsy, she's both. The two of them have basically been mixed up together and repartitioned. And that was the implication at the end of the last revanche story, but here we basically have it confirmed. And in not too many issues, we're going to have it even further complicated. Hooray! Hooray? Hooray. But, But that revelation makes it somewhat more shocking later on on the island when revanche reveals that she too has contracted the legacy virus. However, unlike Pyro, she decides to issue palliative care in favor of uh, ass-kicking for as long as she can. Yeah, going down kicking and screaming, or at least, you know, focus totality of her psychic might-ing. And this is interesting, the way this is portrayed for both Revanche and for Pyro. This is the first time we've seen a visual representation of what the legacy virus looks like. It looks sort of like this collection of really nasty-looking boils that appears somewhere on the body. And so when Pyro dramatically reveals that he has a legacy virus, yeah, he pulls up his cowl, and there it is. And when Revanche reveals that she does, she rips open part of her top to show those boils. Um, I would say take a drink, but no. No, don't take a drink. No, taking a drink would be if one of one of those things were exposed as a result of a fight. Yeah. So, the X-Men, after more deliberation than I feel is entirely justified, decide that it's probably best to let Chambers keep his thing up, and they ultimately even defend him to Hen- Henry Peter Gyrick, whom you might remember as the Walter Peck for the Marvel Universe, who shows up in a borrowed DEA jacket to make trouble. Now, before we move on too much, I do want to talk a little bit about the Brotherhood, because we have two members of the Brotherhood showing up here, in fact, as another group infiltrating the island uh, that we haven't seen in quite a while, and those are Avalanche and Crimson Commando, who's now just going by Crimson. (laughs) I thought he was just going by Commando. I mean, that's probably right. It would be funnier if he was just Crimson, though. But as a reminder, he's basically a cyborg at this point. And initially, that was because he was going to be a character in the all-new, all-different government-sponsored X-Factor in Peter David's original pitch for it. That didn't happen, but yep, here he is as a cyborg, no longer the murder grandpa we once knew, but now a generic Portasio Tech-covered cyborg guy who is much less interesting. 
Now, again, these guys were originally sent to infiltrate the island, but pretty much as soon as they get there and find the rest of the Brotherhood and get some sense of what's going on, they just join up with them. Right. And I really appreciate that. I really appreciate that, that there are multiple panels, even multiple pages dedicated to the fact that the Brotherhood isn't ready to trust them after Avalanche and Crimson, okay, fine, Commando, uh, abandoned two of their teammates during the Kings of Pain crossover backup story. I like that something that would be totally forgotten by most writers is actually being brought in here. I like that the Brotherhood is getting good characterization. And that makes me even sadder that they break up off panel sometime after this story. And we also don't really see Fantasia again, my favorite member of this incarnation, until she loses her mind because she loses her powers in House of M. Man, House of M kind of ruins everything. I'm just saying. I mean, I know it's the big event that started the modern age of X-Books, but I just think it was a bad idea. So what do you think of the Psylocke Revanche stuff in here? Well... It's hard to say because the fact is Revanche hasn't really been around for very long. There was a story where she was introduced and she was all mysterious and we got our big mystery that will soon be retconned into confusion. And then she was just in the background and now she all of a sudden has the legacy virus. It, I don't know. In a way, it almost seems like a cop-out. Like You know how in speaking of House of M, the 198 mutants that kept their powers were largely the main characters we cared about, and most of the mutants that lost their powers were ones we didn't care about? It feels kind of like that. Like, we have this new side character who's interesting, but doesn't really have that kind of history, and we don't have that kind of emotional investment in, and she gets the legacy virus to show that, oh, oh, the heroes can get it too. Like, I mean, I, I like that it's hitting the good guys as well as the bad guys, but I feel like it would have had a lot more impact if it was somebody who was an active superhero at the time, not just the innocent little girl or the purple-haired other ninja. The purple-haired other ninja. That, that, that ultimately kind of feels like Ravash's legacy in really depressing ways. <laughs> right. So, I don't know. I mean, what's done is done. The legacy virus hasn't been a going concern for decades at this point, but I'm just saying, maybe I would have done it differently. Now, Empyrean himself is going to show up one more time and only once. He is going to appear as a straight-up villain, and it's going to be in the Hardys-licensed comic, X-Men Time Gliders. I am so pleased that I found this, and I was actually able to dig up the issues, and they're fine. They're written by everybody's, I don't know, second or third least favorite Excalibur writer, Ben Robb. They're totally adequate comics. But yeah, he's just like a mustache twirling villain. And his plan in this tie-in that you get with fucking kids meals at a family restaurant is to send the AIDS metaphor that is the legacy virus throughout all time periods to cause a inter-time period plague so he can suck up everybody's dying mutant energy and become the most powerful mutant in the world. Dick move. Although, <laughs> although, I will say, it does, it does try to stay family-friendly, at least at points. Wolverine defeats a blob by pantsing him. Yup, but then it goes right back at the end to, wait, a kid's reading this? When the resolution of the story is that they knock Empyrean into the time stream after he steals the X-Men's time glider, which, by the way, was one of the little prizes you could get with a kid's meal at Hardy's, like a little plastic thing of Beast on the time glider. What the fuck? He ends up in pre the prehistoric era and is about to be eaten by a Tyrannosaurus Rex. And that, my friends, is the last we see of Jonathan Chambers. I feel like the universe has been trying to teach Hank McCoy lessons about messing with the time stream for a real long time. 
I'm just saying, even Hardys was trying to tell him. So yeah, that's the A plot of this X-Men annual. And man, such a cool concept. And I think it's executed relatively well here. I think the main failing is not how this issue covers it. It's just the fact that they didn't do anything more with it, aside from the Hardys kids comics. There's also a short backup story featuring Beast called Beast Foot Forward that we're not going to look into this this episode. Instead, we are going to jump to X-Force Annual Number 2, Extreme Measures. Here it is. We're finally here. We're finally here. Okay, okay. I, I, I was not previously fully prepared, but I listeners, you will be glad to know that I am now wearing a backwards baseball cap, the better to cover Adam X's first appearance. <laughs> And uh, since we have a muted video chat going whenever we record, I can confirm Jay is absolutely telling the truth. He is indeed wearing a backward baseball cap. Well done, Jay. Yeah, I'll throw a picture into the visual companion or something. It's not. It's, it's a great baseball cap. It's 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 a, it says Queens and uh, Queens represent in big letters on the front. Nice. Anyway, this issue is written by Fabian Nicieza, of course, penciled by Anthony Daniel, inked by Mark Pennington, Kevin Conrad, Bren Von Sada, Bob Wyachuk, and Keith Williams, and colored by Kevin Summers. Now, it's interesting that Antonio, who will later be going by Tony Daniel, is the penciler here. He's actually going to be a regular artist on X-Force in the future. He's going to do 14 issues coming up. It's doubly interesting that both Liefeld and Greg Capullo also debuted their respective New Mutants and X-Force runs in annuals. I guess that's just a thing with this group of characters. I don't know. So let's talk about the man we're really here for. We've, we've gone through the, the real people names. Let's talk about our, our fictional focus, Adam X. But I feel like one of those real people names maybe can give us a nice little bit of insight into where Adam X came from. Fabian Nicieza says this in an interview by Greg Hassan at the Adventures in Poor Taste website. I wanted to make Sinister live up to his name, so let him be a suspicious, malevolent trickster. A slip of the lip to either reveal a truth or send an opponent to chase after a lie made sense to me. I hadn't necessarily thought of Adam X or a backstory at that point, but when Bob Harris reacted positively to the idea, I immediately said, the child of Kate Summers and DeKen. The Shi'ar wanted to experiment with a human-Shi'ar hybrid and fertilized an egg outside of her womb and grew it in a lab. She never knew about it, Corsair never knew about it, but he's still alive. So, yeah, it's sort of the opposite of a character like Cable, where the cool design came first and the backstory came second. Believe it or not, with Adam X, the extreme, a man so covered in blades that he probably cuts himself more than his opponents, yeah, the concept, the backstory, actually came first, even if we won't learn much about that in this issue. And even if that concept will eventually be retconned away to make room for, unfortunately, Vulcan... I'm just saying, like, opinions vary about Adam X. I personally think he's great, but I think he is just objectively better than fucking Vulcan. Okay, but imagine him basically following the Vulcan plotline and becoming Emperor of the Shi'ar. He would have straight up been King Radical. He would be straight up King Radical from Dr. McNinja. You're totally yeah, right. Yeah. I would be so on board for that. The universe would be so much radder of a place. I mean, I guess. It totally would be. So, the story itself... We open with young mutant Michelle Balters, who's got this sweet, like, yellow and black leggings poofy jacket combo that is so 1993. She's being chased through the streets of Phoenix by Adam X, the Xtreme. Brief aside, do you always find it briefly confusing when a story is set in Phoenix, Arizona? I don't know anything about Phoenix, Arizona, but I see what you mean. Like, just the word Phoenix itself has been totally fucking ruined for me. Yeah, yeah. 
well, Adam X, the extreme. I mean, I feel like we can't say his full name every time, but but for now, we'll see how long we can keep it up. So if you're not familiar with him, listeners, like look at our visual companion, just Google him, whatever. His design is like a perfect mix of too much and exactly enough. He's got long blonde hair with both tiny braids in the front and a big top knot in the back. He's got a soul patch. He's got these spiked knee pads. He's got blades on his thighs, waist, shoulders, biceps, and forearms. And he's got axes like strapped to his back. He is so sharp. Yeah, whatever look this guy is going for, he's definitely leaning into it. You know the look he's going for? Adam X, the extreme, which he's getting 100%. I guess so. Also, he has he has weird eyes. Um, his his eyes are are entirely blue, although they have slightly darker blue irises. They actually look pretty cool. But yeah, he clearly looks not exactly human. Now, whether that's a mutant thing or, as we'll find out, an alien thing is unclear at this point. But I want to point out, his outfit's real sharp. So are his speech bubbles. His speech bubbles all have like hot pink like sharply bladed drop shadows under them, and I have no idea what that sounds like other than radical. Man, this is the era when everyone and their aunt starts to get their own fancy word balloons or fonts, and I hate it so much. I, I sort of semi-blame Sandman as Patient Zero on this one, and Sandman does it well because Sandman does it with very careful limits and for a good narrative reason, and here it just feels like, who's cool? Let's give him a font. Um, it, kids making comics out there and adults making comic, uh, comics out there, lettering is actually a really valuable storytelling tool. And that's important to remember. And so when you make lettering decisions, make them deliberately. Don't just spray variations everywhere like it's 1990 and you've just discovered the gradient tool. I'm just saying, like, if if I could have my own font, I, I would love that. That would be awesome. If my speech bubbles could have hot pink nonsense under them, I would be totally into that. What kind of font would you have? Uh, for me, I feel like it would be sort of, uh, a, a super messy, but sort of all caps with varying letter sized font. And it would just get bigger and bigger as speech bubbles went on. I feel like it would probably have some kind of messily done fake black letter calligraphy in there thrown in there too. That would be pretty awesome. What would your font be like? Oh man. Um, def, <laughs> mine would be a, a hand drawn version of a, a typescript, a, a, of a typographical font. That sounds about right. I think it would be it would be fairly precise, but just wonky enough to clearly have been have been you know colored in and, and drawn by hand. It would not be Helvetica. The revolution will not be in Helvetica. <laughs> Indeed. So anyway, why is Adam X after this Michelle lady? Well, they're buds. They used to make out, but apparently their mutual boss Martin Strong has sent Adam X the Extreme to retrieve Michelle, who's running away. And. He cuts Michelle's leg very slightly with with one of one of his blades, one of his throwing blades, and begs her to just give up, which which she does. And she's legitimately terrified, saying, "I'll go back with you. Just don't flash me, please. Don't flash me." Behold! Okay, flashing is what his powers do. We'll get to that, but without any context, it's just. Oh my god! <laughs> yeah, I got to that line, and I was just like. I know what she means because I know how his powers work, but maybe go with different slang. Do you think Adam X's extreme junk has like a hot pink bladed drop shadow under it? Miles, I do my very best to never think about the extreme junk of Adam X, the extreme. Oh, is that going on the list with Xavier's package? 
No, it's it's just in the I I I have bound specific personal boundaries and limits, and one of them is to try to avoid ever thinking about the genitalia of Adam X the Extreme. Well, uh, hey, you know, y- you do you. Well, anyway, X-Force happens to show up at this point to uh, rescue Michelle from Adam X, the X-Dream, and there's actually a really cool two-page spread where they're all attacking Adam X, and he's bouncing around like, I don't know, Faith from Mirror's Edge and the Prince of Persia had a baby. Like, there are multiple images of him jumping past each member of X-Force. It's actually really cool, and that's the deal with Adam X. He's ridiculously agile, sort of like if Longshot were covered in every knife you've ever seen instead of just a bandolier of them. Yeah, he's got a lot in common with Longshot when when you actually sit down and look at this. He's amnesiac. He doesn't know his backstory. He has a long blonde hairstyle that was considered cool for a very, very brief window of time and now dates him really precisely. He's got blades all over. He you know, hops around like a radioactive flea and so forth. God, you're, you're totally right. And as somebody who loves Longshot as a character and also loves Adam X, but for like completely different reasons, I, I'm going to have to process this. Well, anyway, what Adam X did while he was jumping around like a bladed flea was to slightly nick and cut all the members of X-Force. And then we see what happens when you are flashed by Adam X, the X-Dream, which is that your blood sets on fire because it's 1993. It doesn't set on fire. It just gets electrocuted. Well, okay, technically, he ignites the electrolytes in oxygenated blood, and he has to expose your blood to the air to oxygenate it. So something, something, 1993. I'm not really sure what kind of precise science this is going to fall under, but listeners, if you are qualified to explain to us just how ridiculous this is on a scale from, like, Sienna Blaze to reality, we would love to know. Well, X-Force decides that they don't want to get flashed anymore, so they they teleport away. And as they do, Michelle tells her rescuers about what the deal is with this guy and this quote right here i mean honestly i think if you have an adamax trading card you just put this on the back and that's all you need the only names he has were given to him adam x and when he gets going we call him extreme because that's what he becomes extremely angry extremely powerful and extremely dangerous but specifically, ex- extremely spelled out with an E, angry, powerful, and dangerous. You'd think they'd drop the E. I don't know. Or you'd think they'd add the E to his code name, but, but I'm glad they didn't. Do you think there's a universe where Adam X is like a literature professor and his code name is just extreme? <laughs> it's just the word extreme, but spelled right? Yeah. I, I feel fine about that. He has uh, leather patches in his elbows instead of blades. He's actually just covered in leather patches. No, no, he's still got the blades. No one's oh. quite sure why. Okay, well, well, that's reasonable. Anyway. <laughs> Maybe it's a tenure thing. <laughs> Probably. Anyway, Adam X is also apparently not from around these parts. He's an alien or from a different dimension or something, and he's amnesiac. Now, as for Michelle herself, she has these powers where if she looks you in the eye, she can zap you through 1993 vagueness. And she met Adam X when they both joined up in a study that was done by this guy, Mr. Strong. But they found out while they were working for him that Strong's research was actually to learn how to eliminate mutation. And she ran away when she she found this out. The weird thing, though, is that apparently Mr. Strong is himself a mutant. That's interesting. That's something that Cable tells them, so he knows this, which means presumably either he's come into contact with Strong before or Strong is a significant player in the future. 
And this is interesting also paired with the X-Men annual we just covered because once again, we have a mutant character who's doing sort of iffy stuff to mutants and as we'll find out, has some sort of gray reasons for, for doing so. Speaking of iffy reasons, Strong is also keeping really iffy company. He is working officially in collaboration with Project Wide Awake. Now, as this conversation is going on, the rest of X-Force finds Adam X the Extreme voyeuring at them from afar wearing a backward baseball cap with an X-Men logo on it and bemoaning how lonely he is. Of course, they have a big fight. I, I want to point out before we get here in these notes, I want to let our listeners know that according to Miles' central plot notes um, here, he now ships Adam X the Extreme and Shatterstar. Miles, could you talk about this a little bit? Because I'm... That's that's quite a decision you've made there, buddy. I'm just saying, like, most of the fight scene and most of the dialogue between Adam X and any character is between him and Shatterstar, and they're just talking about how brave and powerful the other is, and they keep getting compared to each other, and I think it would be one of those, like, narcissistic brief hookups, and it would totally make sense. Oh, and then just, like, end really badly and they'd never really talk? Well, I mean, Adam X the Extreme would probably set Shatterstar's blood on fire, or Shatterstar would cut Adam X the Extreme into three pieces or something. It just it would just go poorly. I, I, I was trying to think of any kind of context or frame of reference as far as how, is, how either of them gets along with their exes, but as far as I know, Shatterstar only has one ex, and he's still kind of back together with him, so... Well, no, uh, there's always Gringrave. I mean, she was in the recent Shatterstar miniseries, and she was terrible. Oh yeah, that is true. She does. She counts. I'm sorry. I completely forgot about her because I was so excited about the hand-holding panel in the last issue and it was so, it was really, that series is so good. It really is. Yeah. I just read issue number five also, and it's just wonderful. That series in combination with some of the stuff we're, we're at now and about to start covering as he develops a more distinct personality have in complete opposition to any of my expectations left Shatterstar as like, an important note of personal identification for me in X-Men comics, which I did not see coming and am seriously, seriously weirded out by. Right? Man, surprises everywhere. Oh, to tangent a little bit more, speaking of excellent runs of comics, G. Willow Wilson just did her last issue of Ms. Marvel. She did, I believe, 50 issues total of Ms. Marvel over about five years, and now she's leaving the book and Saladin Ahmed's going to take over. But listeners, if you haven't read Ms. Marvel, like, do yourselves a favor. I firmly believe that that book is everything that superhero comics need to be right now. It is phenomenal, and now it's also a complete run, so you can read the whole thing. Yeah, I'm going to go ahead and say that Kamala Khan is the most important new superhero character of the last at least decade. But let's get back to the most important new superhero character of 1993. So after Shatterstar and Adam X get done, like, flirt fighting or whatever it is they're doing, Warpath ends the fight by just bonking their heads together. Again, I, I believe he's just saying in the back of his head, now kiss. They're able to get Adam X back to headquarters, and to question him, and we learn that Adam X, the extreme, works for Strong because Strong says that he'd tell Adam X about his past. Um, and as Adam X, the extreme, says, If I don't find out where I'm from, then I can't stop myself from becoming what I was trained to be. The man responsible for killing every single mutant on this entire planet. Yeah, in case you're wondering, that mission's never gonna come up again. No, it's totally not. Also, like, if you wanted to find out and this guy was being a jerk, why didn't he just, like, threaten to set his blood on fire or something? You know, 
that actually wouldn't be an effective threat against Strong for reasons we'll find out more about in a little bit. Well, anyway, it's infiltration time. So Cannonball and Siren spend, I think, three weeks infiltrating Strong's headquarters. And it's implied that maybe they already started this before they met Adam X the Extreme. I don't know. But uh, they're interning. So are they just like faxing and stapling? How do you do that in an x force fashion? Extremely, clearly. Well, I guess. But anyway, eventually they are able to sneak into a lab and they find a bunch of mutants in big, like, back-to-tank-looking tanks of liquid, plus a very naked feral in those weird turbine restraints. She has been part of the infiltration thing, too. Like, she didn't just randomly get caught. She was sent to get captured and to, to scope out the facility from the other side. Well... Anyway, Mr. Strong, who is huge, by the way, overhears Sam and Teresa talking, and so there's a big fight, which Strong totally wins. But I'm very pleased to say that during the fight, except for his tiny blue indestructible briefs, Mr. Strong's entire outfit is disintegrated. So take yourself a big, strong drink. And so he puts Sam and Teresa in more turbine restraints and also strips them down to their underwear for some reason. Maybe that's just revenge because he lost most of his clothes. I don't know. But conversely, he puts Feral back in her costume. So I, I don't even know what the hell's going on here. I think Strong Laboratories or whatever this place is called just has a really specific and really esoteric dress code. So X-Force and their new comrade, Adam X, the Extreme, sneak in, and there's a great big fight during which Strong manages to run away, but not before his new shirt has gotten cut, uh, leaving it with a really good Power Girl boob window. Yeah, so uh, take a tiny little sip of a drink. So X-Force chases him, and Adam X, the Extreme, as he's going with them, just keeps flipping around the room and bouncing off walls and stuff before, like, using his handprint to get them through security since he still works here. He's seriously just like a level one night elf in World of Warcraft. Flip, 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 flip. I love Adam X, the Extreme. Yeah, I assume that's just how he moves. I think so. But as they get close to Mr. Strong, suddenly Michelle, you know, innocent, rescued Michelle turns on them and starts fighting them because apparently she deliberately lured them in here in exchange for strong promising to help her family who she when her powers manifested had put into comas adam x the extreme has no time for this kind of treachery you cut me good michelle deep i actually cared but guess what i cut you good too Burn! Oh, Adam X the Extreme, whoever trained you to kill every mutant on the planet did not really work with you on your banter, did they? He does his best. It's 1993. Anyway, eventually Cable stabs Strong, and then Adam uses Strong's exposed blood to blow him up, and as Mr. Strong's body just, like, is annihilated, we find that, hey, there was, like, another person in there, a much smaller person with flippers for hands and feet. Yeah, what we had thought was Strong's body, in fact, Strong's super strong body, was, it turns out, an exoskeleton. It was a big prosthetic suit. And inside, Strong is, is much smaller and, yeah, has has cool flippered hands and feet, and I feel like would do very, very well in Epsilandus. I think he totally would. You know, honestly, though, really, don't we all have a small naked man with flippers inside us when it comes down to it? I mean, a whole lot of people who enjoyed The Shape of Water would like to think so. <laughs> Nice. Thank you. Well, 
Our new friend, Emotionally Available Cable, is totally sympathetic to what Strong was doing. Apparently, Strong was just trying to, quote, cure mutation in people with physical mutations that were super debilitating and that they didn't want to have. He wasn't trying to, like, make nobody a mutant, but obviously, you know, slippery slope. And there's an extensive debate, all of which feels weirdly like poor faith to me, because the issue isn't what Strong wants to do. It's the fact that he's kidnapping people to test his stuff on them. He's going about this incredibly unethically. Yeah, yeah, I feel like there would be a lot of mutants that would just sort of line up for a chance at this. I mean, that's got its own ethical issues, but it's certainly better than kidnapping people and taking their clothes off and then putting them back on and taking them off and putting them in turbine handcuffs and stuff like that. Ultimately, Cable decides that Strong can be left alone to do his thing, and X-Force and Adam X, the X-Stream, teleport out. Now, if you're thinking that Adam X, the X-Stream, would fit really well into the X-Force lineup, you're probably right. Unfortunately, he has different plans. That's right, because when Cable invites him, he says that no, he has to be alone, solo, a loner, Dottie, to spend some time learning about his past. Hey, wait a minute, that's what happened at the end of that Excalibur annual. Excalibur invited Chaos to join their team, and then he said he had to go do his own thing and learn about what his deal was. They're just going to play D&D together. Yeah, yeah, maybe Adam X, the X-Dream, and Chaos, they can be, like, very sharp friends. And uh, through the transitive property of friendship, that means that Adam X, the X-Dream, would be friends with Gritty. Wait, what? No, you established this. Chaos and Gritty are friends. Oh, no, but that's a geek social fallacy. Not all of your friends are friends with your other friends. Yeah, but let's be real. Adam X, the Extreme, and Gritty, I feel like they would hit it off. Fair. Well... That's all we see of Adam X for now, but unlike so many of the new characters introduced in these trading card-filled annuals, yeah, he'll be around for a while. He'll be back soon fighting Shatterstar in Murder World, and maybe, like, flirting with him, and then hanging out with the Summerses, and then fighting-slash-teaming up with Legacy-slash-Captain Marvel against Eric the Red, and then, yeah, that's it for a very, very long time. And aside from a brief turn as Burner in Fabian Nassier's own Secret Wars Age of Apocalypse— He's just going to be a punchline. And don't get me wrong. I enjoy Adam X as a punchline. I think those jokes are funny. But, like, that's the thing. He's actually a really cool character. And even his design and his powers are fine. Like, there's nothing wrong with him. Yes, they're very 90s, but everybody's very 90s at this point. I mean, look at all the goddamn pouches. So I think what it really is is it's the name and it's the fact that he dares to wear a backward baseball cap. And those are really, I think, the only crimes that Adam X, the extreme, perpetrates. I could forgive the baseball cap, but the name is, it, it's its not a good code name. Okay, it's a really dumb code name. I mean, in 1993, it, okay, it was kind of a dumb code name in 1993, but I genuinely love this character, and I feel like he has been done dirty over the years. Oh, it's a 100% plausible code name for 1993. It's just hard to take him seriously in 2019, still with that code name. I completely agree. But I still think he would have been a better third Summers brother. I mean, we talk shit about Vulcan, but for me, it's not even Vulcan being the third Summers brother. Like, I don't like Vulcan, but whatever. It's that, as we talked about a couple of episodes ago, X-Men Deadly Genesis has the worst character assassination of Charles Xavier that's ever occurred when he erases the memory of Kid Vulcan from the minds of the entire world, but more specifically, Vulcan's brothers. I feel like this would have worked way better. 
I mean, it's still kind of awkward. It still involves some weird, like, eugenics-y, rapey stuff, but I like it better than Deadly Genesis. And as I did several episodes ago, I will I will once again say X-Men versus Micronauts, Onslaught. Like, there have been a lot of moral event horizons that dwarf Deadly Genesis, as far as I'm concerned. I'm not saying it was the only character assassination of Charles Xavier. I'm just saying that it was the worst. But that is Adam X, and now you know, and I am so excited that we get at least three more Adam X stories to talk about in the not-too-distant future. So I think those are those are our last 1993 annuals, and at this point, you, listeners, have questions. An anonymous listener asks on Tumblr, Being proponents of queer representation in media, where do you feel the distinction lies between subtext and canon? Is the word of Claremont on Kitty Pride's sexuality worth more than that of the Comics Code and Marvel editorial? What about when you consider later entries in canon, such as Bendis writing Kitty with Star-Lord, but then also including that panel in All-New X-Men 25? So, I've mentioned this before, I think, but I feel pretty strongly that Kitty Pride is textually queer. And the reason I think that, the reason I say that, is that She's been in relationships with women where if they were between a woman and a man, we would read them as canonically romantic or sexual relationships. And I think that that's an entirely, you know, even even without explicit statement of that. And unfortunately, those aren't standards that are applied consistently by the people who own the license. They're not standards that are applied consistently by a lot of readers um, because we live in a heteronormative society, and that's basically what heteronormativity means. We treat heterosexuality as a neutral default, and everything else requires a much higher burden of proof, which is some bullshit. So the the question of what I consider textual versus what counts as textual is a really complicated one. Um, ultimately, what counts as textual is what Marvel is willing to acknowledge as textual. That's They are ultimately the arbiters of canon. They are allowed to say Kitty Pride is heterosexual and has always been heterosexual and have it be technically true for the official version of the character. Now, they'd be saying it in blatant defiance of a huge amount of established material, but they technically could. We hope they won't. They technically could. Again, this is part of why I think fanon interpretation is really important because everyone's subject because because um, the fact that a license holder holds the license does not make them less subjective than the fans. As far and and as far as Claremont's statements, I wouldn't even feel like those were necessary if it weren't for that heteronormativity I was talking about before. That's the kind of proof, that's the kind of evidence that we turn to when folks look at a look at, you know, the coding within the comic and say this isn't enough. As far as I'm concerned, that's supporting not establishing evidence. Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, I feel like for for Kitty Pride specifically, I think you kind of have to try hard to not see Kitty being bisexual or pansexual as as being canonical. Like there's just so much there. I guess it would be harder for other characters where there's a lot of subtext where there's a lot of implication but not as much. But where you draw that line? I mean, I'm really okay with canon being subject to individual interpretation. You know, if you directly contradict existing stated canon, then that's a little harder. But even then, fucking retcons, right? Where Marvel seems to be drawing that line now is a place that I find incredibly irritating. And that is 
technical deniability. There's a lot that can, you know, you can, you can have had the stuff in the comics, but as far as I can tell, the current line lies very specifically at textually acknowledging the queerness that has been represented previously on panel. And it's infuriating and it's, it's really, really sad too, because for as long as straight readers and writers can say, you know, can, can say, well, it's, it's not real. It was never said. And as long as, you know, we do treat heterosexuality as the default that we do, that can, that's something that can de facto be taken away from readers who are already massively, massively underrepresented, making it textual, making it explicitly textual. I, and by that, I mean saying on panel, on page, that someone is gay, that someone is queer, that someone is bi, that someone is trans, whatever, um, makes it undeniable in ways that it wouldn't be otherwise. It stops that argument cold. And that's really important to do. And it's really, really important to to offer. And it's it's the difference in a lot of ways between queer baiting and actual representation. Yeah. I mean, I love X-Men. I love much of what Marvel does. I love a lot of the people that work at and with Marvel. But this is an area where Marvel just isn't doing things as well as they should, straight up. So on a very different note, Amanda asks on Twitter... If you were to name X-Men crayon colors besides Sienna Blaze, what would those color names be? And and we decided, we, we, we saw that there are a couple of ways to interpret this question. We decided to run with the one that we were having more fun with, which was um, which crayons we would name after, naming crayon colors after X-Men, not vice versa. Well, I feel like you got to start out general with Atomic Yellow, although Atomic Carrot is still a funnier name. Wait, isn't there actually Atomic Yellow crayon? I don't know. Well, there is now. All right, so we've got a bunch that are pretty much straightforward named after characters um, ones. So I, I suggest, for instance, Beast Blue. Although that would be Beast Black in earlier crayon sets. We have Sunspot, which is brown but gets lighter over time. God damn it, Marvel. Ouch. Um, gold Balls. Of course. Mystique, and that, that has a random wrapper, but the crayon inside is, is one of those um, multicolor changes color as you color ones. <laughs> nice. Optic Blast, or actually Ruby, probably Ruby Quartz. Oh, and then there would be Ruby Quartz Morrison Edition, which is actually yellow instead of red. God, I hate that detail. Banff Blue. Organic Steel. White Queen. The Crimson Crayon of Citarac. Black Tom Green. That's just confusing. I don't know, it works for me. Um, also, let's see, Pixie Pink. Or Glob Herman, which is the same color as Pixie Pink, but has a visible skeleton inside. And then, then I sort of fell into bad, bad pun territory. And so those, for those, I've, I've, I've only got three, but I really love them. And those are Magento, <laughs> Days of Fuchsia Past, of course, and Beige of Apocalypse. <laughs> I actually have my own, which is Apocalypse, which is a blue crayon the color of Apocalypse's lips. And last, but hopefully not least, Phoenix, a green crayon that if you break it, turns red. I also considered an entire range of colors, each of whose name included the word gray, but none of which were actually grays. <laughs> nice. But that, that just seemed excessively cruel. Well, who is not cruel is you, our listeners, who enable our podcast to stay online and ad-free. And certain levels of support come with on-air acknowledgement from various fictional characters and concepts. Today, we shall hear from the angry Claremontian narrator. Look at you, Sven Krusel. 
charging in, guns blazing, ready to demand justice, or I guess make your own. But did it just not occur to you that your first and most paranoid impressions might be incorrect? That Ryan's work wasn't the supervillainy you anticipated, but in fact just a pretty low-key letter-writing campaign? Nah, because if you'd realized any of that, you would then have been forced to confront the fact that the real supervillainy was inside you all along. And with that... Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York, and Portland, Oregon, and produced by Matt Hunter. New episodes come out Sundays on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, and explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for all kinds of extra content, including visual companions for every episode, and be sure to come see us at Emerald City Comic Con coming up in March. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free and extreme, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Next week, Shatterstar comes front and center... And an old villain rises from the rubble of Genosha. Genosha.